Orgasmic Enlightenment, where the sexual and spiritual come together. I'm Kimanami, and I'm a holistic sex and relationship coach and a vaginal weightlifter. In this show, we explore all things intimate. I believe that our sexual energy is life force, creative energy, and we can use it to shape our worlds, strengthen our relationships, and self-actualize. I blend the most avant-garde information from neuroscience, ancient sexual practices like Tantra and Taoism, to renegade wellness modalities to show you how to create gourmet sex in your lives. Come one, come all. The lie of postpartum depression. I call it a lie because people have come to think of postpartum depression as a normal extension of pregnancy and birth. It's just another phase that women go through on their motherhood journey. That's not to say that women don't have depression after birth. They do. But why? What is the source and is that truly how it's meant to be? Nope. (laughs) Depression after having a baby is not normal. The haggard and despondent state of the new mother doesn't have to be reality. It's symptomatic of a cascade of events that combine to rob a woman of her power and sovereignty, which is really fucking depressing. (laughs) So what if a woman is meant to emerge out of her birth experience and the weeks and months following it, instilled with a massive amount of confidence, bliss, pleasure, and expectation? that life will bring her all she needs. Well, she is. In this interview with Rochelle Garcia Saliga, we do a deep dive into the isolation, struggle, and exhaustion that postpartum is for most women and pivot to address what the missing ingredients are for a restful, nourishing, rejuvenating, and euphoric post-birth experience instead, one that creates the imprint that will last you an entire lifetime of empowered parenting. In this episode, we cover the five pillars of a restorative postpartum, the role of birth trauma in postpartum depression, indigenous traditions in postpartum care around the world, the role of community and how to create it, a man's role and its impact on the couple's relationship overall. Rochelle is a pioneer and a bold voice, like somebody else you know. The body of her work is called Innate Traditions. Innate is that which is natural and inherent. Traditions are those teachings that are passed down from one generation to the next. Nature's design offers us a map to health and wellness. We thrive when we follow that which has been laid out for us. Traditional medicinal knowledge is stored within our blood and bone memory, within the earth, air, water, fire, and stars. The more we heal ourselves from the destructive programming we have received, the more access we have to this knowledge. Innate Traditions exists to midwife a cultural shift where innate wisdom, personal authority, and the sanctity of life are centered and honored. Women are the heart, the foundation of the people. Supporting mothers supports healthy and empowered families, which supports thriving communities, which supports all of humanity. I really enjoyed this conversation with Rochelle. I think I found a kindred spirit and it has a plethora of clear 
and essential insights to offer anyone who has had children and anyone who wants them. Learn how to come out of postpartum stronger than ever, as you were meant to. Welcome, Rochelle. It's so great to have you here. Thanks for having me. All right. So can you tell us about your background and how did you come to focus on postpartum specifically instead of just pregnancy or birth? Mm -hmm. Um, So my background is I was trained in traditional midwifery in my 20s. I spent from the time I was 23 to the time I was 30 apprenticing, um, probably with about 17 different midwives is what I counted. And a lot of the midwives I worked with were in Mexico. They were traditional midwives. And so by the time I was 30, I, I declared myself done with apprenticing. You know, I was just like, that's it. I'm done. I'm complete with that. And then started stepping into the role of midwife. And, um, my daughter was born when I was 31. So there was just like a year period in there, um, that I was attending births before she was born. And then when she was born, I was attending births for a little bit of a time. And I would bring her with me to the births and because I brought her with me, then I also brought my husband with me. And then it became like, well, those, they sleep in the car and then I would run out to nurse or they would put a tent in someone's backyard. And (laughs) we had all of these different variations of how to make it work. You know, I love that. And bring your baby to work with you. That's totally awesome. I love, I did because, yeah, because I felt like I know a lot of midwives who, um, we'll leave their babies at home and go to births, but it felt really wrong to me. I was like, I'm not going to leave my baby to go take care of other babies. So she's going to come with me. And so we did that, except that that's actually really exhausting, you know? And so after we had gone like as a family to about five births between the time when she was like nine months to a year, it was just like a three month stink. I was like, oh my God, I cannot do that. I mean, other women can, and maybe if you have a different constitution, but I was like, that is way too much. And I felt, well, maybe when she gets bigger, I'll be ready to go to birth again. But then she got bigger and then she was like three and four. And I was like, I still don't want to be on call. And I just don't want to be running out of the house at two o'clock in the morning and all the things. And so what I started to do was offer um, uterine massage for pregnant mothers in preparation for birth. And I worked at a birth center and worked with all of the pregnant women there um, and doing that work. And then eventually from that, I transitioned and had my own practice where I was doing uterine massage and intervaginal work and breast massage, a practice that I called holistic well woman care. So for all of the things that uh, you know, allopathic medicine doesn't have cure or tending for, like those are all the things that I tended to. And it was really beautiful. It was like ceremonious work that I did with women and like what would be called like miraculous healings because, you know, when we're tending to the whole body, things heal because that's just like what our bodies want to do. And at some point in time, I was living in Southern Oregon and it's a really heavy, like midwife community like there's you know 30 midwives in this small area and I was like wow it'd be really great if I offered this care for postpartum moms you know and I had a friend who was a chiropractor who was like low impact chiropractic work and her and I were like we should get together and offer this care for postpartum moms we'll do like in-home care and we created this whole thing and I had a busy practice like I was always full and I thought well surely like this is great and we put it out to the world and 
to the world and our community. And uh, there was no response, like nothing. And we thought, well, that's weird. And we'll, so we put it out again and then no response. And this is a place where women are birthing at home. It's not like a oddity, you know? And so then I thought, well, that's really weird. And so then I was like, well, I'll put it out to the midwives because the midwives will surely love this and then we can work together and, you know, and so I put it out to the midwives and there was no response. And I was like, well, maybe they didn't get that message. So then I put it out to them again and literally <laughs> one midwife wrote me back and she was like, wow, that's great. And I was like, okay. And I was like, why, why is there no receptivity to this? You know? And I knew it wasn't like because of my work or whatever, because I knew the kind of experiences that women were having with the work that I was offering. And I knew, um, I mean, my schedule was always full. So I just sat with it. And what I got at that time, this was in 2015, was that there was no collective understanding or value about the postpartum time, even within um, the midwifery community, even within mother's birthing at home community, like no understanding. And then I felt really like angry about that. Cause I was like, well, how is there all of these women birthing at home, midwives attending home births and all these things. And there's no awareness of this. And, um, I was like, someone needs to do something about this. You know, it was like all this outward attention. And then I realized, well, I have to do something about it. Cause it's like, who and what am I going to be pissed about? You know? And so then I decided, well, I'm going to create this thing and I'm going to like talk about the importance and the value of this time. And I created this thing really through this rage that I felt I created kind of this map, this idea of what I had from the years of experience that I had. And I put it out to the world as a course, but I put it out before I actually even had a course, right? It was just like a vision at the time. And just like set a date, like picked a random date and time. And like, I'm just going to have to have it ready by this date. And it filled up, like, hmm. like it just wow. filled up. And I was like, well, I better make the course then, you know, because <laughs> like apparently the practitioners, cause I, I turned it into a course for practitioners. You know, I was like, I want to work with practitioners who are working with mothers and families. Cause I had this kind of vision of this ripple effect, you know, you throw, a stone into the water and there's concentric rings that go bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And I was like, I don't want to work with the mothers and families in my one-on-one -on -one practice. It was so beautiful, but it's also, there's so much need for this kind of work and doing this one-on-one -on -one work all of the time. I was like, I need to do something like the way that I think about it now. And the language I use is like, what can I do? Um, that has the most amount of impact for the least amount of energy output and not in some like lazy kind of way, but just in like a self-preservation longevity kind of way, you know? So I wanted to work with practitioners and that class filled up and um, what it was based on and what all my postpartum work is based on is what I call physiologic postpartum care. So everybody talks about physiologic birth, like undisturbed birth. And that's kind of a well-known concept now. And it just means that we have a physiologic design. And when we follow it, birth is the most straightforward and quote unquote safe and easeful that it could be. Right. And we know that 
the recipe, let's say for physiologic birth is um, privacy, it's having witnesses, but not feeling like you're observed, you know, there's darkness. It's like the environment that you would want to make love in, right? You don't want people barging into your space. And those are the conditions that allow for the hormonal flow for the unfolding of physiologic birth. And so in that same way that we have this design for birth, we have a design for the postpartum period. And we have that design for all of the life stages that we have. Um, and so I called it physiologic postpartum care. And then that evolved into, I call it like innate postpartum care, but it's based upon this physiologic map that we have in our bodies in the postpartum period as women. And that when we follow this map, we have a clear road towards health and wellness and regeneration in the postpartum time. And what my interest was in at that time was understanding and like how I came to this conclusion was looking at all of the postpartum traditions that I came into contact with around the world. And it's like, well, why is it that a postpartum tradition in Mexico is the same thing as a postpartum tradition in China is the same thing as a postpartum tradition in Iran is the same thing as a postpartum tradition in Malaysia. Like how is it that all over the world there's for sure like different flavors to the tradition, like depending on the environment and the food that grows there and all those things, but there's commonalities between all of them. And the reason why they're the same, no matter where you are on the planet is because it's based in women's physiologic design in the postpartum period. So it's cross-cultural, it's not culturally specific. And I feel like that's what I've helped to kind of usher out to the world is to um, take apart this notion that postpartum care is only within specific cultural contexts and to make it understood that postpartum care is part of our human female physiologic design. And that's what all the traditions come from. I love that. And I love that these themes and traditions you see play out in different cultures throughout the world. So what are some of these? Like, what are some of the dominant ones that you've then collected and used as your recipe for the ultimate postpartum design? Mm -hmm. So um, the way that I define it is that there's five cross-cultural prescriptions um, required to create postpartum wellness. So the first one is rest. It's an extended resting period. And traditionally that's anywhere from 21 is the shortest that I found to 60 days. And that means a mother is lying in bed and her, you know, work is tending to her baby and breastfeeding and tending to her bathrooming needs and getting up to shower, but she's in bed, which implies that everyone else is doing everything else right in her home but rest an extended resting period and the second one is about food and there's certain kinds of food that need to be eaten in the postpartum time and the cross-cultural prescription to that is um, warm in temperature warm in nature easy to digest and nutrient dense food because our digestive systems are really slowed down and 
in Ayurvedic medicine, they say that digestive fire needs to be rekindled in the postpartum time. And if you put that into like a Western allopathic medicine kind of understanding, it means we have to rekindle things like hydrochloric acid and um, beneficial bacteria and enzymes because they kind of go out through pregnancy in the process of labor and birth. What if a woman doesn't feel like resting? Like let's say she's had a really easy birth and she's feeling energized and she wants to get up and do things. What do you say to that? So um, rest, I, I feel like what we need to wrap our minds are beings around relative to rest in the postpartum time is like we're not just looking at our health as in like how do I feel in this moment or um, how do I feel in this week it's a long-term view of health and I feel that it's something that's often not part of how we think about health in the modern world so we're not thinking about well just how do I feel now or how do I feel next month it's like how do I want to feel when I'm a 70 year old woman you know because our health is a continuum and each stage builds upon the next. And um, like in Chinese medicine, right, they say that there's three golden opportunities to um, regenerate yourself, to actually become healthier than you were prior to that time, to um, rid yourself of what could be called, quote unquote, you know, genetic inheritances, um, allergies, uh, predispositions and those three golden opportunities for women is our menarche like when we first start bleeding and the second one is postpartum and the third one is menopause so there are times of really big hormonal changes for women and so what i tracked within my work and you know what i feel that traditional medicine medicine systems have tracked is that really how we are taking care of, how we take care of ourselves or not in our postpartum periods <clears throat> is really reflected in our postmenopausal health. <clears throat> Excuse me. So if someone doesn't feel like resting because maybe they did have a really amazing birth and they're charged by it, or maybe they're 22 years old and <laughs> like they're running on their 20 year old energy, you know, it's to offer up the long-term view, which is that we rest in the postpartum period because actually rest is like the primary medicine for protection of pelvic health in the long term. All of our uterine ligaments are totally stretched out. All of our connective tissue is stretched out. That's not a pathology. That's just the design, right? Because our uterus went from a few ounces right. to right. almost a couple pounds to carry our babies. And those uterine ligaments need time to be able to... Um, um, go back to their pre-pregnancy space. So rest is actually the easiest, most affordable, most efficient way to prevent pelvic organ prolapse. Okay. Because everything is stretched out. And if you are up doing things because you feel like you have energy, your body has still gone through this process of pregnancy and birth and everything can slunk down, slink slung down, you know? So it's not about um, not having healthy tissue or anything like that. It's just that the body needs time to heal. And in the world, like the places that have the highest rates of pelvic organ prolapse are actually the places where women get up 
after work and start doing heavy work. So there are communities in Nepal, and I had read about this, and I've had it confirmed now by a Nepalese medical doctor and by a couple friends of mine, um, that there's communities where they have let go of traditional postpartum care, and the women get up, you know, like within days of giving birth and are out working like in the fields and carrying heavy loads on them. And they have the highest rates of, of uterine prolapse there than in the whole world, wow. simply because they have so much weight on them and the uterine ligaments can't support that. And their uteruses are coming out of their bodies. It's really like when I first started learning about it and talking about it, I was like, downplay it because I'm like, well, I don't know for sure if it's this bad. But then I was presenting at a conference and I had this Nepalese doctor come up to me afterwards and she was like, it's worse than what you're talking about, actually. And in these places, there is no natural remediation for that. You know, when you're at that level of prolapse that your uterus is coming to the outside of your body. So women are doing all kinds of weird things and sticking things up their vaginas, you know, to hold their uteruses in place. Mm. So the primary reason that we rest is for long-term pelvic health. So our pelvic tissues and our pelvic ligaments can regain their strength and their well-being. So that is like the primary reason cross-culturally that we rest in the postpartum time. It's protection of women's pelvic health. Wow, that's really profound. Mm -hmm. And so even, so basically, even if you're feeling energized is really just give yourself that space to be still. And, mm -hmm. and is there a minimum of activity though, that just kind of gets the circulation going, or do you really just have faith in the process of being in the prone position as much as possible? So, you know, you're in, it's not like you're lying on your back, you know, but you're, you're resting. And the idea is, is that you're keeping that energy for yourself, right? So another way or another lens to look at it is through understanding Jing, right? As our um, in ancestral inheritance and our primordial essence and the ways that we lose the most Jing is through um, our menstrual bleeding as women. For men, it's through ejaculation. For women, it's through birth. And we can say, okay, well, these are normal physiologic processes and part of what it is to be human. But the reason why there's ritualized rest in the postpartum period and why there's supposed to be ritualized rest when we're bleeding each month, when we're menstruating, is to prevent excessive gene loss. So it's a way that you're keeping as much of your reserves inward. So, you know, in this ideal world, it's like, great, if you're energized, let that energy stay within you and fuse you and circulate within you and not out output it with exercise or with movement, but you're like harnessing that as your like life reserve, you know, and in terms of circulation, like blood circulation and lymph circulation, one of the cross-cultural pieces to postpartum care is body work. And what is happening is that every single day that postpartum mother is receiving some kind of um, light um, 
touch. So like in Ayurvedic medicine, it'd be Abhyanga, right? So warm oil massage for her whole body. It, it would be likened to like a lymphatic massage because she's not moving her lymph. Right. So the body work is meant to move blood and lymph and bodily fluids. So it's like everything is being done for her so that her energy is staying within her system and between her and her baby and for her rejuvenation purposes. That's the the structure of it, right? So it's the resting specific kinds of foods that are easy to digest. It's the body work. Um, all postpartum traditions have warming. You want to go back? Yeah. So you, okay. Yeah. So we started out with rest and I wanted you to mm-hmm. elaborate more on that, which you did. And then I think you mm-hmm. even gave me more of the explanation I was looking at was in terms of like some movement is healthy and you're saying, okay, well, the body work actually takes care of that. So the lymph Mm -hmm. movement and recirculation within the body is done through body work and Mm -hmm. then food. So I'd, um, I'd come back to that when we got into food. So what you said, warming food and Mm -hmm. what else would you suggest? Like what else is part of that prescription? Totally. So the cross-cultural prescription is warm in temperature. So it's not appropriate to eat cold things. So now, you know, you'll see going around social media, like um, the postpartum mom who has this big spread of food on her bed. And it's like, well, okay, we're, we're getting there. Right. But the spread of food is like salads and fruit and actually like salad and fruit is the worst thing to eat in the postpartum time. It's really hard on the digestion. Okay. You need to actually have really strong digestive fire to digest raw things. And we're saying that a mother's physiologic system is likened to a newborn's physiologic system in that it doesn't have really strong digestive capacity. So in all traditions, the postpartum food is soft, warm, warm in temperature, warm in nature. So like cinnamon and clove, ginger, warming spices. So it's easy to digest so that her body doesn't have to do extra work to digest it. Again, it's an acknowledgement that we want all of that mother's energy to be within her body system and to go to breastfeeding her baby. And then it's nutrient dense. So it's like, how can the food that we eat um, deliver the most amount of impact for our body, right? So for us to heal connective tissue after birth, we need to put into our bodies collagen, right? Which is animal based. We need a ton of fat to lubricate the inside of our body. So postpartum food is lubricating, warm, sweet, Um, oily. So a lot of times, like when mothers are constipated in the postpartum time, like the modern school of thought is, well, you need more fiber, you know, and eat more salad and fruit, but that actually can create constipation for postpartum moms. So to me, when there's a postpartum mom that's constipated, for example, she needs way more fat in her diet, like tons of ghee or butter, um, fat that's going to nourish her tissues. Okay, that's fabulous. So rest, food, body work, and there was two more you said. Mm -hmm. And then warmth. So all postpartum traditions have warming elements for the mom. And and like a way to think about it that I talk about it often in class is to like never leave postpartum women out in the cold. And so what does that mean? It means that 
that her environment should be warm in temperature, but warm in, in care, that she's not meant to be alone, um, that warmth needs to come back on her body. The postpartum body is in a cold and deficient state. So the way, an easy way to think about that is pregnancy is like, it's a time of excess, right? We have, um, you know, the extra weight of our uterus and we have amniotic fluid and we have the baby and we have the placenta and we put on weight. And then after birth, the baby comes out and the fluid comes out and the placenta comes out. And in the postpartum time, we're in a cold, deficient state. So we need to do things to bring warmth back into the body. So there's things like moxibustion that's done, right, which is burning mugwort over the uterus as a really incredible um, warming therapy. And different peoples all across the world have different things. Sometimes it's just having fires burning next to the mother. Sometimes it's warming up, um, like taking a fire, you know, making a fire over sand and then moving the, the fire and then taking hot bundles of sand in cloth and pressing it into the womb. Sometimes it could just be a hot water bottle. It could be the sunshine. But the idea is that postpartum mothers need to be in a field of warmth, not cold. I love that. And what's mm -hmm. the fifth? And the fifth one. So when I talk about these things, those are pillars. That's how I talk about them. But for pillars to stand up, they have to be on a foundation. And if they don't have that foundation, then pillars can't stand so none of these things can actually happen without the fifth piece, which is community. Um, and community for all of the practical reasons that a postpartum mother can't do any of these things in the postpartum time without a social network of support. And then for the psychological, mental, emotional reasons that we're human beings and we co-regulate um, and that's how we stay healthy and well, you know. So in order for there to be uh, this return or a construction of postpartum health and wellness, we have to have a base of community. And so this is the modern day conundrum, right? That like what most people don't have is community. And it's also why I believe that while, um, you know, midwifery in the sense of birth and physiologic birth has returned to the collective awareness so much sooner and faster than the postpartum time because birth, even if it's long, is a few days in time, right? But when we're talking about the postpartum period, really what we're talking about is life and we're talking about maternal health and there's no like easy solution, right? Like you can't... Um, you know, control your reality for a few days, how you can in birth, and then have this experience. It's like, it's a total restructuring that we're talking about, about how we're living as people, you know? And that's why I do believe that um, postpartum care has only come back out to the collective recently because the conundrum. Right. And um, I mean, that's a huge piece because everything, the first four can't really happen without the fifth, right? Like right. you can't have all of those things require the mother doing the minimum of external relating and caretaking that others have to pick up those pieces. So, and I think that this, the modern mother 
essentially exists in isolation, except for, you know, rare exceptions where people have communities and they do think about these things and and they've already maybe just happened to have a community or they're in this more holistic pregnancy and birth world and they consciously cultivate that, you know, with those things in mind. Um, So what, what are some things people could do to create community if they don't, have any. So like, let's say a couple is thinking about getting pregnant and they've got some friends, but you know, I don't know that they've got people who could help them through 40 days of postpartum Mm -hmm. support. So what can people do if they're thinking, Mm -hmm. okay, great. I love the sound of all this, but, um, you know, (laughs) like I can count support people I've got on one hand. There's no way that we could, you know, allow, rely on them for that many days of support. What can they do? Because I think mm-hmm. for a lot of people, that's a really amazing ideal, but probably far-fetched for the kinds of lives that they live. Or they might have friends, but their friends may not be there, you know, and willing to take on those sorts of responsibilities and support for a length of time like that. Mm-hmm. Totally. And this is a thing because really what, when we look at this, like straight in the eye of like what we need in order to actually thrive as postpartum mothers, and then we're seeing this massive discrepancy, right? That, that we're talking about and that you're naming. It's like, this is how we know that we need nothing short of a cultural revolution, right? Because in in order for us to be able to um, continue existing on earth as humans, we need to create really big shifts. So in, in this time, you know, that we're living in, it's like, what are some of those things we can put into practice? Like you're saying, it's like, be willing to restructure our life. So what does that mean? It means that um, maybe you decide to co house with another family so that you can be mutually supportive. Maybe if you like your parents or your partner's parents, that they move in with you for a time. If you have the resources, then you hire help to help you and you prioritize your care, not as some luxury, because a lot of people still think about postpartum care as like a luxury or like it's secondary, you know, Um, but it's not, you know, if we look, if we pull it all apart and we understand that postpartum care is preventative care for long-term pelvic health for your marriage, because what, like 60% of marriages in the U S end in divorce and a large percentages of those divorce happen in the first two years of a child's life because of this stress, right. On the relationship and such profound lack of support. So it's like preventative uh, medicine for relationships, for pelvic health, for immune health. I mean, how many modern mothers have developed autoimmune diseases through their postpartum periods? And this is all because of lack of care, you know? So it's like, what are we willing to do? What are the changes that we're willing to make? How can we be radical in prioritizing this for ourselves? And, you know, part of what my work is, like I work with health care practitioners and those who decide to like go through the whole process with me in this training that I created, like what I did in thinking about, well, how can I participate in shifting this reality and this consciousness was I created this like community education series that then they go and teach in their community. Because the idea is, is that 
right now, people don't even know what they don't know. Okay. Mm -hmm. So first of all, how do you get people to know that they don't know something so that they want to know what they don't know? Okay. And so it's a whole thing. But so this class is set up to teach people who are curious to know what they know that they don't know and talk about these things, but then bring these families together in community in their respective places, right? And there's practitioners who have worked with me in over 35 countries around the world now. So what they're doing, they're teaching these classes, talking about these things, pulling families together. So those families then can become support for each other. So if they didn't have community before, then they can form community then. And then I don't know all the ways. This is like the question that we all have to be asking if we care, you know, about having truly regenerative postpartum times. But, you know, what is a true thing and an interesting thing is I know tons of women who have had beautiful, undisturbed physiologic births to arrive in their postpartum times and be fucking slammed because they had no planning and no preparation. So it's like you have this beautiful birth experience and then you're still within the harrowing collective reality of motherhood in the modern world, you know? Because like the systems, the structures that are set up, like they don't give a shit about mothers at all. It's anti-life the way that things are set up. So it's a question that we all have to ask of how do we create life giving life sustaining systems, you know, whether we're talking about on a big scale or just in our local places. Wow. That's huge. And I mean, I can see, and I'm, I love how you've laid it out so clearly that the, the postpartum period really is this imprinting process, right? And so that the, Mm -hmm. from on every level, like emotionally, the support that she receives, physically, the support that she receives, and that the long-term damage of not receiving that is huge and, Mm -hmm. you know, filters out into the marriage, into her body for decades to come. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. And, you know, in the way that in Chinese medicine, they talk about so the postpartum time with proper postpartum care is meant to regenerate you so that you actually come out healthier um, through your postpartum time than you went into pregnancy. But what we're seeing in the modern world is the opposite. We're seeing a complete degeneration from mothers through the postpartum time. And then because that's what we're seeing, that's what gets normalized. And so then we're like, well, that's, that's just how it is. I mean, you have a baby and then you fall apart and that becomes everyone's (laughs) expectation, you know? Right. But it's only like that because of lack of postpartum care. Anytime there is a degeneration in the postpartum time, we can say there's not enough support, not enough nourishment for this mother and baby and family. Well, it's interesting that the the symbolism of prolapse, right? Because I think the stats are like, you know, 50% of women after childbirth experience some kind of pelvic organ prolapse, and maybe mm-hmm. that's even higher. Um, but the, the metaphor of the lack of support, right? Mm-hmm. And that things are now like she has no support within her body, you know, her pelvic mm-hmm. floor, everything's falling out. So mm-hmm. that seems very apropos. And I think 
you know, that leads us into this notion of postpartum depression, which as you're saying, these ideas become normalized and I don't think mm-hmm. they're normal either. I don't think that women are like, it's sort of like just, Oh, you, you got postpartum depression. That's part of having a baby, right? Like mm-hmm. it's just part of the deal where I'd say instead it's symptomatic. I, I look at it as symptomatic of two things. And one, having this utter lack of postpartum support and care and most mothers being in isolation, never mind having community support, but feeling literally being alone. You know, their partners Mm -hmm. are working. They don't have people around them. They are alone with their babies. And then having some form of birth trauma, which pretty much everyone does, right? Like, especially Mm -hmm. if they birthed in the hospital, I would argue that it'd be very rare to come out of a hospital birth and not have some kind of birth trauma. Um, Mm -hmm. Even though, again, those things are normalized, right? It's normal Mm -hmm. to have babies cut out of mothers and have them drugged up and sliced up and hacked up and treated poorly. Like that's just birth. That's normal birth. Mm -hmm. And it is normal. It's not natural, but it's become normalized. So the, you know, so what are your thoughts on postpartum depression? Because I would guess that you'd see it similarly, that these are, this is just an, an outflow of a really, of negative experiences and unsupported experiences. And what else would you say about it? Yeah, no, totally. I agree with that. And, you know, when I first started teaching, it's like I was seeing what I was seeing and had experiences with women that I had, you know, that, that made me believe and intuit that you know perinatal mood disorders postpartum depression postpartum anxiety you know all all of these things I could feel were from lack of um, proper care I could feel were from obstetric violence that was experienced in the hospital I could feel were from interruption in the physiologic process of birth you know and there are so many women, I forget the the statistic, you know, it before the whole COVID shenanigan times, it was like one in three women were in the United States was on an anti-anxiety or anti-depression medication or both. That was before wow. the past couple of years. Right. So, I mean, if I had to guess, I would say like half of the women in the United States are on some kind of SSRI right now, you know? And, and just in my experience in working with women, um, and women having me tell women telling me story after story, like, um, anywhere from, you know, um, every time before I bleed, I feel really rageful and angry. And so I went to my doctor and I was like, you went to your doctor because you feel rageful. I mean, this is so out of my, like. <laughs> But I'm curious, like, and what did your doctor say? You know, because I'm like, wow, this is fascinating to me. Well, my doctor gave me a prescription for Zoloft. So I'm like, wow. And this is how I learned about these realities because women would tell me, you know, because right. I worked for a time in, in a birth center that had just all kinds of women who would come. And I would be like, okay, so you felt rageful before your bleed. So you went to a male doctor and he gave you Zoloft to take as the resolution to that. And I was like, do you know that it's normal to feel like that before you bleed? Because it's actually um, your body showing you what's out of balance in your life and like where your boundaries are too loose and what's not working for you. And it's actually an opportunity to create changes. But like, because we pathologize 
ourselves. So the point where I got to, I'll loop back, but like the point where I got to this past year is like, this is all inside out work. And what it is, is that because of the past, whatever, hundreds, thousands of years of patriarchy or whatever the hell we want to call it. Yes, there has been violence against women and all these things, but our internalization of this as women is we um, gaslight ourselves. It's like we feel something, but then, well, we don't really feel it. Or you see something, you're like, well, I don't know if I really see that. Or maybe I'm not, maybe this is not right. Maybe I'm being too sensitive. And so instead of just trusting our felt experience of reality, we gaslight ourselves. And because we gaslight ourselves as women, what's reflected back to us is a society that gaslights us as women. You know, you don't really feel that. You feel rageful. Or you just need to take this pill so that you don't feel the rage instead of understanding that all of the emotions that we feel have purpose to them. They're informing us of something really important if we're willing to listen but like we don't listen to ourselves because we don't trust ourselves because of all of this indoctrination and um, acculturation that we've received through the years as women. Yeah. So isolation, absolutely. You know, there's all, all kinds of um, research that's been done about the impact of isolation and loneliness on our health. And it's more degenerative for our health, isolation and loneliness than it is to be morbidly obese than it is to be an alcoholic, than it is to smoke several packs of cigarettes a day. And I'm not making that up. Like if you Google it, you can find the research study that was done on it. Like the health impacts of social isolation are greater than all of those things, okay? So that for sure is a major piece, interruption in birth. So it's not even like the overt um, abuse in the hospitals, but it's that anytime there's interruption in our physiology, there's a consequence. And some of those consequences we know of, and some of them we don't. So like one of them that we know of, because there's just new information coming out to the public recently is anytime Pitocin is used, Pitocin is synthetic oxytocin. And it's used pretty much if you're going to have a hospital birth, you're going to be injected with Pitocin, right? They're either going to use it to augment and start your labor. They're going to use it as a preventative, which doesn't actually make sense, but so that you don't have a postpartum hemorrhage. And can we say that Pitocin is helpful as like a life-saving thing. Sure. Like if you're having a true postpartum hemorrhage, but it's, you know, way, way, way overused. And the consequences of that is that it blocks our our oxytocin receptor sites so that like our body will still produce oxytocin, but we can't actually receive the oxytocin that's being produced so that they've tracked that there's a 30% increase in depression for mothers who have received Pitocin at birth. There's interference with being able to breastfeed because the primary hormones of breastfeeding is oxytocin and prolactin. And that's just like what we know about. So, you know, what I think is really amazing if we have opportunities to be around animals, it's like if you interrupt an animal's birth, there will be consequences between that mother animal and that baby. There will be rejection of the baby. Um, sometimes the mother will refuse to feed the baby because you've intervened in the birth. Yeah. 
So we don't even know all the ways that we're intervening with our physiology, you know? So yes, overt obstetric violence, but then yes, all of these meddling in physiology. Um, and um, also what I would say that is a big thing is uh, the way that I think about it and name it is it's ancestral grief because for a lot of women arriving at the postpartum time is the first time in their life that they will consider, um, wait a second, this is something that's so normal and so natural that I'm doing, but like, where are the women that are supposed to be around me? Why does it feel so hard? Why does it feel so miserable? And if you follow that track, it's like, well, where's my community? Well, you don't have community. Well, why don't you have community? And you keep going down that. And it's it's really this acknowledgement in terms of how my mind goes and acknowledgement that our respective ways of life, our respective indigenous ways of life, our original cultures have been so disrupted and destroyed, most of us in the modern world, that we don't have that holding, right? And so if you're just getting there for the first time in your postpartum time, you're encountering a massive wave of grief, like intergenerational grief and, and so much healing that hasn't been tended to in our respective lines because of so many generations out being in survival mode, no matter what bloodline we come from, you know? So I would say that grief is a really um, massive thing that comes up that then can get named postpartum depression, you know, or get some diagnosis of these things. But I put that in there too. Right. And it's like coming to the head and the reality of you might have been able to get by in your life without community up until these mm -hmm. this point, right? Exactly. And function until then, which is like the potentially the most important time in a woman's life or in a couple's mm -hmm. life to have this community support. Mm -hmm. So on that topic then, what do you see the role as men in this situation. So obviously a man, a partner can't replace an entire community, but what do you see the man's role as being for caring for the woman in pregnancy and birth and especially now postpartum? And in the work that you've seen when men do take an active role, what happens versus when they don't? Mm -hmm. That's a whole modern day conundrum too, because I feel that it's a really beautiful thing that women are wanting their men to be present in these experiences. And I know that there are some women who, you know, them and their partners are growing closer together through the birth and the men really step up. Um, and I think the potential in that is um, more intimacy and more connection in a relationship. And the conundrum is that men are so under supported also like I really feel that right now like what I track in my relationship and most of the women I know and their men is that the men are so under resourced like the women are pretty tapped in in that like they have mm. friends we have friends we have um, more communities we have groups we tend to we have these things and the men don't have a lot of that i feel like that's just starting to come out more and more to the collective now like more support and holding for the men 
And then what I see also is that the men actually don't have an imprint of how to show up Mm. because who in their lines has been present for the women in birth and the postpartum, like no one like ever. Yeah. So they're having to really invent it in the time. And so the potential of it, like I said, is this intimacy and this connection and this flourishment. And what I see happening a lot is, you know, women having these expectations for the men to show up, but the men aren't showing up how the women want them to, because they don't know how to, you know, and in the world of, of pre and perinatal psychology, you know, which really looks at everything through the lens of pregnancy and birth, they say that we're meant to have two layers of support. Cause if you look at birth as um, like the microcosm, when the baby's inside the amniotic sac, that amniotic sac has two layers. It's called the amnion and the chorion. And they say in the same way that there's two layers to this bag of water that our babies are in, we're meant to have two layers of support all the time. So as the woman giving birth, let's say one of her layers of support is her partner and that's awesome. But who is her second layer of support? And if that man is her support, she can't support him at that time. Mm -hmm. So he needs two layers of support. And so who are his two layers of support for him to be able to show up and support her? And so that's actually a model I like to work with because it feels workable of like, if we all can wrap our minds around that, like who are my two layers of support? Who are your two layers of support? Because that's actually how we can do the holding that needs to be done in this realm. So I would say that for men to show up in terms of how we're wanting to, or for that potential to exist, it's also how can we resource the men? Because the men right. are flailing a lot. Right. Well, it's interesting. Yesterday, I was doing a breakout, like a Zoom call for my sexual mastery for men program. So we've got hundreds of guys on this call, and um, they're a lot of them said that's so awesome. Yeah, and a lot of them mm-hmm. said this is the first place they've actually felt this community of men where mm-hmm. the goal is authenticity and vulnerability and really sharing about their struggles mm-hmm. and supporting each other and it's so beautiful to see like I come off these calls just totally. like oh, you know because totally. they're so supportive of each other and encouraging and then they'll share things about where that you know real issues they're struggling with and they're all just supportive of each other and cheering each other on and you know there's no judgment it's just like compassion and love and it's just beautiful and many of them have commented like it's the first experience they've had of this like they haven't ever been in a group of men where Mm -hmm. they're all in that energy together and that purpose Mm -hmm. together so I'm so happy you're doing that that's just like so beautiful Mm mm-hmm Yeah. And Mm -hmm. I think the second step of that, now I feel like I had to do a podcast on men's role in these things, you know, because Mm -hmm. I mean, do you have any suggestions for that? Like, cause I, I agree that they, most of us and most men wouldn't have received the imprinting of what would a healthy, powerful male role be in these experiences. So how can they figure that out? Because yeah, there's tons more information out there for women. I mean, I can do a podcast on it, but any other ideas on that? I mean, 
I would have to sit with that to think there there is there's a couple men who are lifting up this kind of fatherhood work, you know, but I mm-hmm. think like to me the larger root level issue of it is this understanding that like we are living in a new time and we are moving into a new time and while like you know because I'm in the birth world and like traditional medicine world and while clearly I believe that we should be informed by the wisdom of all of these old um, ancient systems of medicine right for the benefit that they have to us in the present it's also an understanding that we need to create new things now you know like we can for sure be informed by the wisdom of the past but we're living in a time that has never been lived before on earth and so we need to create new things and i really do believe that so much of that is we really have to go inside of ourselves in whatever it is in whatever way it is that we do that meditate pray, you know, have sex, like whatever it is with the inquiry to get the answers to these questions, because I think we have to birth the answers to these questions that we have to these larger problems, because some of them, it's like so complex. And if we're only trying to like source the answers from what's already here, I don't think that we can go forward like that. I really think we're needing to pull down new, you know, so yeah i don't have like a straightforward answer i'm always appreciative when i hear like that you're doing that work about the couple men that i know who are doing that work um for me what's up lately is a lot of doing like that inner polarity work of like my masculine because i feel like there's always so much projection of like the men on the outside like how the men are showing up or how they're not showing up but like what about like our inner masculine and how we're in relationship with that inside of us you know and are we being respectful of our inner masculine in relation to our inner feminine and i think most of the time the answer is no (laughs) so i think there's so much inside out work to be done there i don't have um answers i have lots of questions and it's actually something that's been really up for me lately that i've been thinking about right yeah well, look, I love like the overall theme of what you're saying and the intent of your work is to create a postpartum experience for women that's rejuvenating the same thing that, you know, where we look at the unfortunate state of modern birth, where women come out more damaged, more um, mutilated than they began, right? And that mm-hmm. that has lifelong consequences instead of the notion of a if not an orgasmic birth, a transcendent, self-actualizing, empowering birth experience that sets you up as a mother for life. Mm -hmm. And that Mm -hmm. postpartum is an extension of that, that you come out of that experience feeling not only like rejuvenated and energized, but I think also what you're saying, that ability to rest really gives us that opportunity to go inward and to Mm -hmm. intuitively connect to the eons of wisdom that we have within our lineage of how to be a mother, how to access this intuitive grace and knowledge of how to parent, you know, in a really Mm -hmm. self-actualized, really energizing way. Because I think so much of the messaging I've seen over my lifetime 
of motherhood even is that it's a burden it's a chore mothers aren't respected they're kind of like the house slaves of the family they pick up the dirty socks and do the shit work you know of the of the household it's a really thankless and really not honored job and we've mm-hmm. kind of you know, participated in making it that way and how we look at women. And because I think women emerge out Mm -hmm. of these experiences feeling downtrodden, feeling Mm -hmm. abused, feeling disrespected, not feeling honored. And so they go forward with that energy and that imprint. And so people respond to that. That's what they're radiating, really, Mm -hmm. versus Mm -hmm. these other experiences that then women rise up in their most formidable, passionate, powerful selves, right? Mm -hmm. And truly embody the archetype of what it is to be a woman, what it is to be a mother, what it is to retain their sexual selves and even become more embodied in that through these experiences. You know, that I love as the model to be gearing towards, right? Where this is what it was meant to be. You know, birth was meant to be a transcendent, pleasurable, even orgasmic experience. Postpartum is meant to be a euphoric, um, psychedelic, even, you know, um, transcendent experience. And if it's not, that's because we've stumbled and gotten lost along the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, like something that I think is interesting that I just kind of saw into in my work is that there's all this research out there, right. That talks about like, how long does it take to create new neural pathways, which is essentially how long does it take to create new habits? And you look at any kind of old system of um, being or any practice we're trying to do, and you have to do things over a certain amount of days to actually turn it into a habit that you're going to stick with and stay with. And so then, and what I've read is like, Well, it takes anywhere from like, you know, 20 to 60 days to create new habits, new neural pathways. Well, how long are postpartum traditions? They're 20 to 60 days. And I really feel like the intention behind that is that a mother receives and receives and receives and receives for these days. And so the neural pathways that it's setting up, the expectation that it's setting up is... Um, I deserve this and I am cherished and I am beautiful and I'm dignified and I am noble so that when she were to walk out of this kind of caretaking in the postpartum time, it would be with that level of radiance, right? But that's, that's like encoded into these old traditions that's encoded into, um, into our physiology, right? It's like, that's when we're talking about the laying in period for 40 days. It's because in 40 days, then you're going to emerge with a whole new set of expectations and understandings of how you're going to carry yourself in the world, you know? So yeah, I, I feel like that's where the, the timing and that comes from. I love that. And it's because it's really the opposite that we see where women are Mm -hmm. trained to give out too much, right? To Mm -hmm. have weak boundaries and not Mm -hmm. ask for and receive what they actually need. So they overgive to their partners, to their children, to other parts of their lives. And then they get angry and resentful Mm -hmm. and frustrated and they don't trace it back you know, mm-hmm. to, and, and that's the model that we see, right. Of this sort mm-hmm. of like altruistic, all giving mother, which mm-hmm. there's, I think the darker side of that is the overgiving, 
right? Rather than yeah. the more what you've described, like the more noble and trained like to receive good things to receive energy because yes women give out we breastfeed we birth we create but we need to be filling that cup or else it's just completely it's a depleting experience totally and to me like where I got to with that you know just in the past year of like looking into all this is that why because you know where where conversations often go to amongst women you know in maternal health work is like kind of this victimization of women right because you know i mean in one sense it's true it's like women are victimized of this horrible system and all the things and it's like how are we perpetuating this and to me it's like why like why and and i can answer my own question right but it's like why do we collectively as women accept such shit like why are our standards so low in terms of what we accept for ourselves as okay, you know? And this gets back into before what I was talking about, about women gaslighting ourselves, you know? It's like, if something doesn't feel right, then it's not right, right? But what the condition is right now, if something doesn't feel right for a woman, she feels like something must be wrong with me because I feel like this. Instead of being like, I don't feel right And I don't feel right because it's indicative of something being not right in my environment, right? She projects it back onto herself. Like it's always her. And the example I like to use is that if there's a flower growing, okay, and that flower is not blooming in all of its glory, we're not going to have a thought of like, what the fuck is wrong with you, flower? You know, you're not growing. You're yeah. kind of ugly. Like you are not in your full glory. No, we're going to say, oh, maybe you need some more water. Maybe I need to cut these bushes back so that you can get some more sunlight on you. Maybe I need to add some compost to your soil that's a little bit depleted. And once we add in the sunshine and the water and the compost, well, that flower is going to bloom, right? And I feel like it's the same thing for mothers. It's like there's such an internalization of like something's wrong with me for feeling depressed or anxious or rageful or whatever it is, instead of being like, something's not wrong with me. Something's wrong with my environment. Okay. Where is it that I need more nourishment? What is it that I want, that I need to help me to bloom, you know? And and in the same way that that flower needs sunshine and nourishment and compost and water and all those things, we need elements of support and nourishment in order to be able to bloom, you know? So, yeah, it is about our environments and about making change in our environments. I love all of that. So... One, what would you say to women listening who've experienced a less than ideal postpartum or even a harrowing one as some do, what words of wisdom would you have to share with them in terms of where they are in their life now? And then is there anything that they can do to kind of, you know, rebalance from this? And then what would you say to women who have not yet given birth, but are currently pregnant for things they can do? So for the women who had harrowing postpartum experiences, you know, there's, there is the truth that we have this like window of time. That's like the sacred window or 
<laughs> excuse me, it's called many different things in many different places of like that potential to rejuvenate in the postpartum time. And while we may not have access to that, we always have access to healing. So like pelvic issues can always be healed. Okay. So even if you gave birth 30 years ago and you've had some kind of pelvic problems since then, you can tend to that, you know, you can receive help for that. You can tend to it on your own and you can heal that, right? What happens in the um, acculturation of how we're living? It's like, well, I had a baby. So now I just pee in my pants. Right. Like, no, you don't need to actually pee your pants because you had a baby. We can actually tend to that and we can heal that. Most women track their digestive problems of having started from their last birth. So they had their last baby 15 years ago, 20 years ago. You can can tend to that. So all of these things can be tended to, you know, there was this one woman who took my class. She has 10 children and she's in her sixties now. And she was like, I didn't have postpartum care at all for 10 children. And after she took my class, she took a whole year and did like postpartum care on herself. And she said what that meant for her was she took a nap every single day. She said she hadn't slept that much in like 20 years. And she had one massage a week for the whole year. And it's like so beautiful when she talked to me about it. You know, she's like, I feel like a totally new woman. And she says, I feel like for the first time in 20 years that like I've pulled my energy back into me, you know? So it's just, it's not ever too late. It's just making conscious um, the reality as mothers that like, if we're going to give and give and give and give, which is what we're doing as mothers, then we need to receive and put back into ourselves and receive and put back into ourselves and put back into ourselves because we have to value our own selves. If we want to be valued, if we want to be honored, we have to value and honor ourselves first, right? And that can start anytime. And so I would say in that, it's like grieving because that's real, like what we didn't have. And then valuing and honoring ourselves, you know, in all the small ways to the big ways of how that looks for us. And then for the ones who have not yet had babies, <laughs> I, I mean, this is like a thing that I just constantly trip out on because I'm like, we don't need to repeat this people. Like we've already had really horrible postpartum experiences and like, you don't have to do it because we can tell you how to not do that, you know, and we can set you up to have it be totally different. But, you know, I'm at this place where I'm like, there must be some reason and something that the collective is getting out of having these really horrible experiences because it keeps getting repeated and repeated and repeated. And so really what I say to the women who haven't yet had babies is talk to the women who have had babies and hear what their experiences were like and decide if you want it like that for yourself or if you want something different and be willing to put in the time and the effort and to make the changes to have what you really want, you know, because to be able to create these postpartum periods, it's going completely against the grain of what is. So you have to be um, courageous and you have to be devotional to yourself. You know, you have to prioritize yourself. 
in those classes that the practitioners who have worked with me are teaching, you know, like these community education series, what they tell me is that it is like first time parents are not coming to these classes. Okay. It's like second, third, fourth time moms. Cause they're like, Whoa, that was so bad. I do not want to do that again. You know, but first time moms are like, my husband has a week off from work or <laughs> my mom coming to town for three days after birth, you know, like, this is why would I take a class about this, you know? And, and it's like that young, like ignorance mixed with innocence kind of thing where um, we have forgotten as like a collective of how to listen to those who are older than us, who have just more years and experience than us, because maybe we can learn something from them so that we don't have to repeat the same thing. But you maybe though they, they maybe they don't even know, right? Like I wouldn't, I'm, I would be surprised if our mothers actually had really positive postpartum experiences. Oh too, no, it's been right? several generations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's true though. I can see that naivete, right? Like, well, mm-hmm. yeah, like I'm getting like, yeah, mother-in-law's coming for a week or two or whatever, and then, mm-hmm. yeah, right. Well. Any parting words, anything you'd like to add? Hmm. Um, I'm just grateful to have this conversation. And I really do feel, excuse me, that this work is um, so so much inside out work for us as women to uh, really value and honor ourselves in um, not just intention, but in our actions and how we are prioritizing and taking care of ourselves. And that the more we're doing this inside work, the more that that's going to be reflected to us in the outside. Fantastic. And do you have any resources for women that they can check out for this? Or is it more for practitioners? No, I have tons of stuff up on my website. I mean, there's tons of blog articles and free classes on my website that women can register for. And innate postpartum care is for practitioners, but then those practitioners are teaching around the world, you know, so they can take one of those classes and like that. Awesome. Thanks, mm-hmm. Rochelle. This is amazing. I love what yeah. you're doing. It's so important. And I love that you're a voice for this new new reality that we can all create totally thank you kim thanks for having me and thanks for all of your work the sexy mama salon is open for registration this is my eight-week online salon on all things holistic pregnancy and ecstatic childbirth it's my view and experience that just like all women can have vaginal orgasms and voracious libidos so too can they have orgasmic transcendent blissful births yes every woman can she just needs to clear the blockages and programming she's taken on via a corrupt medical system and a culture at large that seeks to remove a woman from this power. I seek to restore it. That's what we do in Sexy Mama. We go through every stage from conception through pregnancy, birth, and postpartum to reprogram you with all of the strength and power and ecstasy to make these peak life-affirming experiences and create an imprint of bliss for life. 
Yes, it's possible for everyone. Sexy Mama begins next week. Even if you aren't currently pregnant or have immediate plans for children, you can start the reprogramming process and create confidence in your current and future choices, knowing that they are backed up by facts and impeccable Anami research. See you inside. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, subscribe and also leave a review and send someone else the gift of a healthy libido and an off the charts love life by sharing this episode with them. We'll be back next week. And in the meantime, many happy orgasms.